Welcome to Law Technology Now with host Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of ALM's award-winning magazine, Law Technology News. Hear the latest about technology for the legal community. If it's tech, it's a topic right here. And welcome to our February edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of Law Technology News Magazine, and we are thrilled to have you listening. I have two wonderful guests today, both of whom are featured in our cover story of the February issue of Law Technology News Magazine with the headline of True Grit. And both of them definitely have true grit. And our story, which we'll talk about momentarily, is a package of wonderful articles about what big law firms are doing to handle e-discovery. But before we get there, I want to take a moment and give you our usual housekeeping, that there are three different ways you can listen to our podcast. You can listen at the ALM site, which is lawtechnologynow.com. You can listen at the Legal Talk Network site at, surprise, surprise, LegalTalkNetwork.com. And because we are so cool, as I always say, we are in the iTunes Podcast Library. And I'd like to introduce our guests, John Rosenthal and Paul Weiner. And uh, Paul, let's speak with you first. And quickly, before we dive into the meat of this, tell us a little bit about um, your title and what you do at Littler. Well, thank you, Monica. Uh, my name is Paul Weiner. I'm National E-Discovery Counsel at Littler Mendelssohn. Uh, Littler is the largest uh, law firm worldwide focusing exclusively on management side labor and employment issues. And in my role, uh, my team and I serve as a standalone resource to our 850 lawyers practicing in 55 offices across the country, as well as our clients. And uh, John Rosenthal, tell us what you do at Winston & Strawn. Thank you, Monica. Uh, I'm a partner at Winston & Strawn. I work in our litigation group where I do antitrust and complex commercial litigation, but I also chair our e-discovery group, which is comprised of uh, different components from attorneys to legal assistants to review attorneys to project managers to technical specialists servicing our offices both domestically and internationally on a wide array array of e-discovery and records management issues. When I first assigned this story um, to Robin Wiseman, who is one of our terrific freelancers who's based in L.A., and she and I wanted to try to figure out what were the various models that the particularly the the top firms, the AMLAW 200 firms, were using to deal with e-discovery? Because as we all know, everybody for years now have been talking about the pressure from clients to keep costs down, how to deal with these just monumental volumes of documents. And when I first started looking at the story, I thought there were really sharply defined key key models. So when, when you go into a story and you're reporting it, sometimes you start with a premise. Well, as I wrote in my editor's note for this issue, which will be out um, on uh, uh, February 1st, in fact, we're going to sneak it up online a little earlier, uh, right before the Legal Tech uh, New York show um, at www.lawtechnologynews.com. And as, as we started to report the story, I found that my my preconceptions were frankly dead wrong. 
And in fact, it got so confusing at one point that I, I kind of felt like Alice in Wonderland had fallen, that I'd fallen into the uh, rabbit hole. My first impression was that the many of the firms were doing standalone practice groups, and then you would hear about programs such as Wilmer Hale, where they were developing review areas in secondary markets. And then I heard about what Pillsbury was doing with its Pearl Alliance. And what I thought was going to be a relatively straightforward story became this massive, huge package that hopefully will enlighten some of our readers. And I particularly enjoyed, and I know Robin did as well, talking to both of you because you both have very strong programs in your respective firms. And what I'd like to do today on the podcast is first start by asking each of you to describe what you do, how your firm approaches e-discovery, and what you particularly do in terms of review. So, Paul, let's start with you, if you would. Would you take a few minutes and, and walk us down how how the firm at, at uh, Littler handles e-discovery? Absolutely. Um, uh, many years ago, uh, my firm read the tea leaves and recognized that e-discovery was going to become a major part in um, all litigation, not just large cases. And uh, they went out and recruited me. And since that time, I have developed a team that includes five full-time lawyers, uh, a dedicated litigation support staff with uh, people placed around the country, as well as a data center uh, where we handle for our clients if they choose to use us data processing and hosting. Um, In terms of the lawyers, we are full-time practicing lawyers, but we focus solely on electronic discovery. Uh, We all also have um, extensive litigation experience, um, so we can do anything uh, from uh, working behind the scenes with our trial teams to give them advice as to how to handle a case, uh, all the way up to if they would like us to pro hoc into the case and handle court conferences, uh, meetings with opposing counsel, any type of motions that come up in the case are actually running an e-discovery aspect of a large case. Uh, We have three shareholders, myself, Cecil Lynn, who's based in Phoenix, Michael McGuire is based in Minneapolis and two associates, uh, Aaron Cruz, who's based in San Jose, and Neloy Ray in Chicago. And um, it really is a grassroots approach in the sense of if uh, a case team wants to work with us, uh, they reach out and get us involved um, at any stage of the case that they believe uh, is warranted. Uh, in most instances, it's very early on where we can give them some real strategic guidance and work f- uh, through the entire case with them. In other instances, it may be later in the case, particularly where an e-discovery type of issue has bubbled up and may be, um, may be uh, taking over. Um, now, the Paul, list- in, the, in the article, one of the points you were very emphatic about is everybody talks about the idea that um, EDD requires people, processes, and technology. And you made some very strong points about why the people are the really the most important part of that agenda. And to also tell our listeners, you are based in Philadelphia, so you have a literally a coast-to-coast operation uh, uh, with your team. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And on that point, Monica, you know, people, process, and systems are all, all critical for uh, in the e-discovery world. Uh, the people we'll talk about in a minute. A process could be best practices that you put in place, for example, using a presumptive privilege uh, quality protocol once you have all of your data loaded into a, uh, a, a litigation support platform. And then the systems are, you know, anything from a review tool to uh, predictive coding is very hot right now. 
or uh, something like trial director to allow you to present your evidence um, electronically in court. But the, the, the process and the systems are only as good as the people who are using them. So you can have the best – I like to give the example of sometimes clients will go out and, and purchase an a, a automated litigation hold tool, which are phenomenal um, tools. They, they, uh, they automate the process. They allow you to do a lot of follow-up. Um, it makes it very defensible. However, at the end of the day, there are still going to be a lot of analysis as to who needs to be put on litigation hold um, there'll be a lot of follow-up that uh, the tool itself cannot do that, again, requires analysis. And um, if, frankly, you just don't have people that you can rely upon, that you can give them things and know that it's going to get done, you can have the best tool in the world, but, in fact, it can end up causing you more problems um, than if you didn't have the tool. So the people really are key, and that's really how we've built out our system is – my goal is to hire the best people at whatever le- level, whether it be an e-discovery um, shareholder, whether it be somebody who's in the litigation support department, or somebody working in our, our national data center, because at the end of the day, the people are going to um, be the ones who, who really bring success to your clients and to your system. In fact, uh, George Sosha, who we all know is the co-founder of the Electronic Discovery Reference Model, or as it's affectionately known, EDRM, um, has said repeatedly in his analysis that that hiring the right folks and retaining them may well be the most difficult part of the entire process of doing e-discovery. Uh, I, I would agree with that. Uh, again, this is Paul. And for, for a few reasons. Number one, it's very challenging um, to find the right skill set for what you're looking for, uh, given that e-discovery is relatively new. It's only, you know, the focus of it has been around for about 10 years. Um, there are, are not a lot of people out there who, um, at the high level, really have the deep skills that you're looking for. And again, across the spectrum, whether it be lit support, lawyers um, in the data center, but also, as the, the need for e-discovery professionals has really exploded, um, it really has become an incredibly competitive market. So you have a, a small set of professionals out there who do have the requisite skills, and now you have a, a relatively um, large volume of firms uh, somewhere on the forefront like, like John and Winston and & Strawn and, and, and others, and some are just coming uh, on board with the model. But there really is now a, a recognition that the people are important and uh, there's an incredible need for people. So you, you have very small set of people and a lot of demands, which actually adds to, the, uh, to you know, what George was talking about, how it is difficult to find them and then ultimately retain them. John, let's turn for you for a moment before we do more drill down with both of you and uh, give our listeners, please, an overview of how your firm at Winston & Strawn handles uh, e-discovery. Well, Winston & Strawn is one of the largest litigation firms in the world. And I came to the firm three years ago and was recruited by its management team because it, it recognized, as Paul said, that e-discovery has become a, a massive component to our case, both in terms of a cost component and a risk component, if not done correctly. Um, and and the charge that uh, I was recruited for was to build one of the premier e-discovery shops in the country, and not just at a law firm, but... Um, taking account the vendors and the consultants that are out there. Uh, my view is that because of the complexity of e-discovery and because of the volume that we're now faced with, uh, as opposed to years ago, pre-rules amendment, 
you need to control the e-discovery process yourself because you have to be able to uh, know what the tool set is and then apply a process uh, across the entire EDRM. You, you just can't do what people years ago, which is wait to collect the data, uh, load it up in a review system to figure out what the data is, how you're going to analyze it, how you're going to call it down. That process starts really at the beginning, at the first stage when you get the call from the client. So my belief is we have to own the e-discovery process from cradle to grave. And my personal belief, because of the variability of, of vendors in terms of quality, service, support, and pricing, you can't rely upon a vendor network if you really want to take e-discovery in a serious way. That is assuming you have a certain level of volume of litigation within your firm or within your corporation. Now, your program differs from um, the one that Paul described in that you have what what we understand is 22 lawyers who are located all through the firm's offices, but they don't necessarily all work full-time on e-discovery. Can you tell us a little bit about what the makeup is of your group and and the philosophy behind it? Well, our group is really composed of three components. The the first component is 22 e-discovery lawyers who are also litigators or labor lawyers or have some other function within the firm. So they do e-discovery not for their full-time job. And they are geographically dispersed both domestically and internationally to deal with uh, advising and consulting with teams on legal issues related to e-discovery, preservation, uh, Rule 26, uh, um, meet and confers, uh, motion practice. And then the second component of our practice is uh, a lit- litigation support department of 26 individuals led by Scott Cohn, who I think is the best lit support uh, person, director in the country. And his group uh, handles the, the nuts and bolts of the e-discovery across the EDRM. And what we've done with that group is we have internally put every step of the EDRM behind our firewall. We do our own collections. We do our own processing. We do our own early case assessment. We do our own hosting. Uh, we do our own analytics. Um, and then the last component is a review component. Um, you know, the, the old model of throwing associates, full-rate associates, or even staff attorneys at projects, um, it's very difficult to do in terms of both efficiency, and it's difficult to do match the cost of, of the various uh, outsourcing review companies here domestically and internationally. In order to compete, law firms, I think, have to change that dynamic. We decided to change the dynamic by creating our own review company inside the law firm. So in D.C., we built out a review center. We hired a, a very sophisticated manager, uh, somebody with 10 years in review experience to run that, and we run our own review business. So that's our three components. And we're going to take a quick break here because when we get back, we're going to talk more about the reviews. And the review of the documents, from what I understand, is the one area where we see a lot of difference among the various firms on how they approach that. So we'll come back and talk with you a little bit more about that. But first, we're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, Firm Manager by LexisNexis and Harvest Software. We'll be right back. If you're like many solo and small firm attorneys, it can be challenging to manage both your practice and give your clients the attention they need. 
Well, now you can do it all free for 30 days with LexisNexis Firm Manager. Built from the ground up for attorneys like you, it's an easy way to get organized, master your business, and keep your clients happy. Firm Manager is secure, web-based, and mobile, so you can manage your practice anytime, anywhere, from your laptop, smartphone, iPad, or tablet. No IT hassles, no long-term commitments, and best of all, no more worries about what needs to be done. Get your free 30-day trial of LexisNexis Firm Manager today at firmmanager.com LTN. That's firmmanager.com LTN. Reap the rewards of your billable time. Harvest is an uncomplicated time capture solution used by law firms and related firms like the Bar Association and LexisNexis. Capture your billable time from anywhere. Surprise client call? Get it on record by starting a timer on your computer. Working off-site? Track billable hours from your mobile device. No sticky notes, no hassles. Visit getharvest.com law for a free 30-day trial. That's getharvest.com law. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And we're back. It seems to me from what we learned reporting this story that one area where firms really do differ is how they handle the review of documents in the search for relevance or what might be privileged. Can you tell both of us, um, in your experience, uh, both within your own organizations, what models you use, but also uh, tell us a little bit, uh, educate us a little bit more about what other models are out there, if you would. Paul, do you want to start? Sure. Um, First, I think it's important to make the point that, as with any aspect of e-discovery, you can't look at it in a vacuum. So when you're talking about review, um, you really need to take into consideration the the entire uh, people, process, and systems that you have in place. So review to me first means putting in place very robust preservation, um, focusing then on targeted collections, uh, working with the trial team to have very aggressive meet and confers with opposing counsel where you are uh, reducing either the scope of what needs to be reviewed through date ranges, through custodians, through other methods, um, through maybe uh, agreeing to a predictive coding technology or some search terms. And then ultimately, once you have taken all of those steps, you get to a corpus of data that ultimately needs to be reviewed. So step one is it really has to be looked at in context. In terms of that corpus of data that needs to be reviewed, um, for the most part, we have uh, we handle those reviews internally with our trial teams. Having said that, for larger cases, we often are recommending that our clients retain directly managed document review vendors, um, especially if those vendors offer an alternative pricing approach, which can help achieve significant cost savings for our clients, which is uh, in, in the doc review piece, which is often the most expensive aspect of any case. Having said that, um, in terms of the vendors that we would recommend, we highly vet them. Um, we want to make sure from a, uh, a credentials of the reviewer standpoint, from an information um, security standpoint, from a quality control standpoint, 
ultimately our firm is responsible, has to stand up in court, has to sign the dis- the, the uh, discovery um, answers, and we're responsible for what happens. So it's not as if we will just um, go to any reviewer. It's somebody who is uh, that we have either vetted or in many instances our clients have preferred relationships where they have done the vetting and we double-check that. Um, so for the larger reviews and consultation with the client and the case team, we will um, oftentimes go out to a um, preferred vendor. Having said that, uh, as we know in today's day and age, even the smaller cases now are requiring a lot of volume. So, um, you know, it's something that we certainly keep in mind in, in all cases. Um, one of the reasons that our firm chose not to build out the review model is because we are a labor and employment law firm. So. While we do handle a lot of very large cases, we've been written up by Law 360 for the last three years in a a row as handling the most class actions of any law firm in the country. Um, We also handle a lot of smaller cases uh, and a lot of smaller single plaintiff or investigations or charges. So we just did not think that from from that standpoint, we needed to build out that capability. And John, how about you? How How does Winston Strawn approach this? Well, there are three basic models in the marketplace today. One is the outsourced review model. We don't think that model works for us. It may work for other firms, but we think you have to have a more sophisticated attorney today do review, and you have to follow primarily the second model, which is what we follow, which is a process-oriented review. And that's where you are applying analytics across every stage of the ERDM, EDRM, from when you do collections to when you're doing your culling to doing when you're doing the review. So I'll give you, for example, you know, the, the process review or the, the outsourced review model is predicated on using lower cost reviewers. And under that model, yes, you're getting a lower cost reviewer, but the incentive of the outsized, outsourced review company is essentially look at as many documents as they can. Under our model, what we're trying to do is reduce the volume in various defensible ways and using various tool sets from uh, applying search terms to using threading technology to using uh, near-duping and duping technology to using clustering and concepting tools. And every case is individual in terms of how you apply those tools and when you apply those tools to what stages and also creating a defensibility around that. And what we've decided to do is that I cannot teach a 1,000 attorneys how to use all these tools. So internally, we've created an analytics team made up of attorneys, paralegals, and project managers that specialize in working with the case teams and clients on how to apply this technology for the best fit. The third real model is the predictive coding model that you're seeing a lot of hype about, and at Legal Tech, we'll see a ton of hype about. Predictive coding, to me, is a tool like any other tool. I think it's a tool that's being misused by certain vendors in the marketplace to oversell it for what it is. As what Paul said, it is about people, process, and technology. You're not going to be able to get rid of any one component without the other. Predictive coding can be a good and powerful tool, but there's a huge potential for abuse. So predictive coding is yet another tool that we look at, use when appropriate, but it's not appropriate for all circumstances. The key is using the available tool set along with process and good people to make sure that, A, you're reducing the volume of what you have to look at and then more efficiently reviewing what is left over. For us, we don't think we can do that with an outsourced uh, uh, attorney review model. We think we have to have a better level of reviewer and an analytics group that can apply these tools and these processes on a consistent basis. 
Well, as you can probably tell, uh, this we have just touched the very, very, very tip of this fascinating uh, iceberg. And I encourage you to um, take a look at our cover story, True Grit, which will be in the February issue of Law Technology News. You can find it online at www.lawtechnologynews.com. And I want to thank very much John Rosenthal and Paul Weiner. Before I do our final sign-offs, would you each quickly tell our listeners how they could reach you if they wanted to pose some questions to you? Uh, John? Sure. I'm at uh, uh, jrosenthal at winston.com, and my uh, direct dial is 202-282-5785. And Paul, your turn. Sure. I could be reached at pweiner. W-E-I-N-E-R at Littler, L-I-T-T-L-E-R dot com, uh, or direct dial 267-402-3010. And uh, as I said, this is just an amazing, amazing topic. And thank you both so much for your insight. Uh, As I said, you can read more. But now it's time for our customary thank yous. And I want to give a shout out, as always, to Lou Ann Reeb, Mike Hockman, and Kate Kenny at the Legal Talk Network here in New York to David Jasper, David Snow, and Jill Winward at ALM. And of course, a warm thank you to our sponsors, Firm Manager by LexisNexis and Harvest Software. You can find us at lawtechnologynow.com, legaltalknetwork.com, and in the iTunes podcast library. And finally, with a nod to our friends in Boston and New York, Remember, there's no crying in technology or football. See you in March. Bye. I'm Monica Bay. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Law Technology Now is produced by the broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join Monica Bay for next month's podcast on the technology issues affecting the legal profession today.